today is going to be an odd Sunday. We actually have a videoless Sunday. Is that a term? Did I just create a new word? Um, but as I was, uh, you know, this week's been a busy week. We were on vacation the week before, trying to get ready for Easter and, and then catch up and, and stuff. But as I was, as I was getting ready for this week, I just, I just couldn't help but think if I could just do, if I could just understand a little more deeply what we're going to talk about today, if it would just take hold a little bit more deeply in my life, that not only would I be a decent dad, I'd be super dad. Because there'd be a total different way that I deal with my emotions and how I deal with disappointment and how I deal with discipline. I'd, I would be a much better husband. I, if I could just grasp what we're talking about today, I would live at so much more at peace and, and I'd probably laugh a whole lot more than I already do right now. Today we get to look at one of my favorite portions, a section of one of my favorite portions of Scripture. It's in John. And John is the disciple that is closest to Jesus. He's, he's this amazing guy who, when in the, in the Passion Week, as you read the story, if you're rereading that for, through some of the, some of your quiet times now during this Easter season, you'll realize that John is, is the one who didn't flee when Jesus was arrested. He's the only one of the disciples who didn't fall away. He actually went with Jesus to the trials and he stuck with him. And, 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 and the same John is often called the, the, the disciple of love or the apostle of love and and uh, and he he says something that is very uh, challenging, beautiful, and at the same time haunting and one of the reasons why this portion of scripture we 're going to deal with today is one of my favorites is because John, in his gospel, spends the bulk of his writing actually all on one week and one day. From chapter 12 all the way through into chapter 21, it's all about one week and one day in the life of Jesus. It's about his last week. It's about the time when he, Jesus was already talking to them saying, I know things are about to end. And for some reason, John perks up and, and says, I'm going to pay attention to Jesus' last words and last actions because last words and last actions usually are the most important, the most pointed, the most direct and clear for us to understand. And, and John makes this observation, which is kind of a thesis statement for what he understands to be kind of a thesis statement for what he understands Jesus to have done during this time period. In John 13, 1, he says this, Now before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And that passage, that, that, that statement is both haunting to me and, and at the same time it's, it's one of the most beautiful things that, that I think I've read in Scripture. It's, it's haunting to me because I have every intention with the vows to my wife to love her regardless of what she does till death do us part. But you know what? The, the raw reality is that, that when I come home and I'm, I'm, I'm in a grumpy mood or like actually I was kind of grumpy last Sunday. I hope you didn't see it because I was suffering from PVS. It's a, it's a gender nonspecific version of PMS that happens after everybody's vacation, post-vacation syndrome. You know, the two days when you get back from vacation, you just go, I'm not ready to be back. I just want to rest. I want to sleep and play another week. And, and I hope you didn't see it, but I was grumpy last Sunday. My wife saw it. 
And you know, you, you come home from times like that and, and you just go, I want to love you, but then you start making excuses going, I'm just tired, I'm not ready to be back. Or, or maybe it's been a stressful day and we just start making excuses and, and talk about how we're just, you know, we just can't do any better. But, you know, if I were to, if I were to capture this ability to love to the end, to not, to not allow those excuses into my life, but to love as Jesus did. I mean, he had every right to be grumpy at this point. He had every right to be under stress and withdraw and take care of himself only or ask other people to take care of him because he knew what was coming and he had been the brunt of all the conflict that week going on and the tension, the political tension and the, the people who he knew were plotting to kill him. He had every right to be having a bad day. And yet, and yet, he spends his time showing his love and how patient he can be to his disciples. It's such a beautiful passage of Scripture, this whole section of Scripture. And, and I want to point out in just a second a verse in 14.1 that kind of sets up today. But before we get there, you have to remember that the rest of chapter 13, we see Jesus not only uh, 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 dealing with his disciples and, and he, he shocks them and he's the master and he, he, he girds himself in a towel and he washes their feet. He, he even washes Judas's feet, the guy who's going to betray him. And, he, and then he, he gives communion to all of them, including the guy who's going to betray him. And, and then we know it from other contexts, although not from John 13, but the other contexts who describe this exact period of time, we also know that he spent time telling his disciples that, that you're all going to fall away. And, and Peter responds to that and says, oh, no, Lord, this brash Peter, the strong leader of the pack says, no way, I'm not going to fall away. I'm going I'm to follow you to the death. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, Peter, uh, Satan has asked to sift you and I know you're going to come back, but, you, but, but in the next 12 hours, you're going you're gonna to run with your tail between your legs and you're going to deny, deny me three times. And then Jesus says this. Do not let your hearts be troubled in John 14.1. Yeah, right. You've just said that you're going to die. You've just said we're all going to fall away. We're going to face this intense time. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Yeah, that's completely logical. And then, he, and then he says this. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And the original language that this is written in doesn't fully translate here because that kind of sounds passive, kind of like an invitation, but it's, it's really more of Jesus saying, you trust in God. You trust in me. It's, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, a, a hardcore seasoned veteran soldier who's, who's seen many wars and many battles, taking a group of, of rookies into battle who he knows have a tendency to run, turn their tail and run. And, and he just looks at him and says, trust me. I'll lead you through this. We'll make it through this if you'll trust me. This is a sense of command and that Jesus is, is actually communicating here. And, and this whole idea of trust is, is really the centerpiece of our faith. If we could isolate one thing, this ability to trust God is the centerpiece of our faith. You know, I was thinking about it this week uh, and... Uh, came to mind the, my childhood. You know, I grew up in a home that wasn't, uh, wasn't real well off, but we always had enough. And there were four hungry boys and we were all extremely active. You know, it was before video games. So you got a whole lot more exercise than, than working your thumbs back then all day long. And, and so we were just, we just eat our family out of house and home. But you know what? Even though there were four boys and we just had ravenous appetites, I never ever remember 
any of our any of my brothers taking food and, and sticking it under the table or sticking it in their pockets because of wondering whether they'd have food for the next meal. You know, we just we just always trusted my parents and their love that there would be food there. Now, now I do have to admit, for a couple of years, uh, my one of my brothers was nicknamed Chipmunk because he would uh, leave the table, and especially if it was hot dogs, for whatever reason, he loved hot dogs. Uh, he would walk away with a great big chunk in his cheek. It wasn't because he didn't trust there was going to be food; it was because he wanted a mid-afternoon snack, and he didn't have to come back for it. Kind of weird if you, it was kind of one of those uh, Brick things. If you're a middle fan, you know, Brick has his whole soothing condiments in his pocket. It was more of one of those things, not an issue of trust. But, you know, as a parent growing up now, I've, I've sometimes wondered with my kids, if we were to ever face, you know, you watch the dramas at night, the movies at night or, the, or whatever, and, and, and you see these dangerous situations, I've kind of wondered at times if, if, if I and my family were ever in a really dangerous situation, would fear overtake my kids so much that they wouldn't be able to act? Or would they trust me that regardless of the level of fear to do what I asked them to do? And I suspect that if you're a parent, I'm probably not the only one who's thought that way in the past. And really what Jesus is saying in this passage when he says, trust God, trust also in me, he's saying what we talked about last week in different words to take up our cross daily and follow him. This heart of trusting Jesus and trusting him is the heart of the message. It's it's what the kingdom of God is built upon. And when we trust him, we get to see the reality of his presence among us. But trust is not always this glorious, grand thing. Sometimes it's just really real and raw. Sometimes it almost seems feebly. We have a friend, Wendy and I, that we've known for years. I'd worked, uh, her husband especially, I got very close to working with him for about five to six years. Five to six years, we'd spend about a month, practically a year together uh, doing stuff. And just a really wonderful, wonderful family and friend. They have four four kids. And uh, she's been struggling with cancer for the last couple of years. And I follow her on her Caring Bridge journal. And April 2nd, just a couple weeks ago, or about eight days ago, she wrote this in her journal, which I think is just an amazing, raw testimony of what real trust in God looks like. She says, I've been thinking a lot the last few days about faith like a mustard seed, as all God really expects from us. While most of the time I feel like I, I have faith that is huge and unending, and she, she really has faced this battle that way, and it's not been an easy battle. It's had a lot of ups and downs and questions of whether it was going to turn out well or not, especially lately. And, and she says, currently I'm doing my best to come up with even an ounce of it. She says, maybe I'm gun-shy. Maybe I'm at a place where I'm saying, fine, but you need to show me the money. Or maybe it's just time to let those around me hold up my arms and believe the unbelievable for me. She said, it's such an odd place in my spirit to be cautious, on edge, doubtful, when we could be on the brink of a miracle because they just, they just heard, in fact, they just spent this last week in Houston at MD Anderson because they just heard of a clinical trial that was bringing great hope to them. So she says, when we could be on the brink of a miracle and even a, a great possibility that we would actually refer to the cancer as being in remission or even gone forever. 
And then I can picture, because I know her pausing, she's just a very thoughtful person. And then continuing, she says, you know, the bottom line is that God knows best. He knows how this is going to play out. He knows what I need. He knows the big picture and how this will all play out. He knows that my kids need a mother. He knows that I'm doing my best to be faithful to him. And that's all I can muster at the moment. And I sure hope it's enough. And to me, that's such a great example of great trust. It looks different at different times. And I think that's the reason that God says, take up your cross daily. Deal with this issue of trust daily. Deal with this issue of letting me be in complete control and you not having to know all the answers daily because it's going to look different daily. Some days we're going to be like her where she says, I have this unending faith and I have this unending trust. And other days it's just going to be all I can do is say, God, I hope this is enough. But it's a trust that's real. And yet, I don't know about you, but I think so many times we live life with this anxiety, this anxiety that is this salvation thing. Really real is this, is this promise that Jesus gives us of a, of a good life, of an abundant life, of, of the things that he says he'll do in our life to transform our lives. Is it, is it really real or is it just for the pious and the really extra religious people? And, and some of us probably live with this anxiety that I'm just going to always backslide. I'm going to, at some point I'm going to backslide because I, I just can never get over this issue, whatever that issue is. I'll never be free. And we live with this subtly pessimistic feeling that the good news is, is really just wishful thinking. And all these thoughts and fears combine to make us doubt our faith and it undermines our faith. And the reality is that when we deal with this issue of trust as the centrality of our faith, any kind of self-loathing, any kind of self-demeaning thing we do, any worry, any guilt, any shame, really, when it really comes down to it, it's just evidence that we don't trust that what Jesus did for us is really all-sufficient. Maybe it's only just sufficient a little bit. And, and we almost have to start asking ourselves the question, has he set us and, no, I need to be more personal to that. Has he, has he set me free? Has he set me free from the fear of his justice and how great he is and whether he accepts me or not? And has he set me free from the idea that I, I can't like myself because of my sin or not? Has he really dealt with that or not? Which is it? Trust is the commodity God looks at all throughout the history. We, we see it in Abraham. We see if you just follow the life of Abraham or any of the Old Testament characters, you see, you see the whole trust issue and God wanting his heart to trust him completely is, is the thing God desires so much. Even to the point that, that the, the very thing that God promises him, Isaac, a, 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 an heir, he asks him to, to at one point sacrifice, and we all know if you know the story, he, he rescues that, but, but he wants absolute trust. And, and we see this same kind of trust evidenced in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament where they're, where they're about to be judged and thrown into a fiery furnace for worshiping a god instead of worshiping the king. And, and they say to the king, King, I, I, you know, God is, our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we trust him and will serve him. And we see it so evidently in David's life. He's, he's anointed king and then 
And then we find him for years and years and years hiding and fleeing from from the, the, the existing king who's trying to kill him and, and whether it really ever happened and, and God's wanting to test the trust of his heart. Does he really trust him? In fact, one day David and all his men are hiding in a cave and Saul walks in, it says, to relieve himself in the cave. And, and he's right in front of David and and David is tempted saying, do I, do, I, do I seize it now? He's given my enemy into my hands. Do I murder him and become king? Or do I trust God's good timing? And am I willing to flee and live in caves a little bit longer? And he makes the right choice. Listen to David's heart about trust. Psalm 56, 3 and 4 says this. David says, when I am afraid, and I'm sure he was afraid a lot of times in his life. When I am afraid... I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I put my trust, fearing nothing, because what else can men do to me? In Psalm 27, 14, he says, put your trust in Yahweh or God. Be strong, let your heart be bold. Put your trust in God. Psalm 40, verse 4 says, happy is the man who puts his trust in God. Psalm 13, 5, he gets even a little more specific. He says, but but I for my part... Rely on, trust in your love, O Lord. Psalm 52.8, I put my trust in God's love forever and ever. Trust is at the core of what it means to follow. And a prerequisite for fullness of blessing in our life is, is this ability to learn, to go deeper each day, to take up our cross daily each day and choose trust in his love versus trust in what we can see and feel and what we think we need. Whether he heals us or not, or whether he heals us on the timing that we want or not, whether it's easy or not, whether life is going along well or not, will we trust him and trust that his love is there? And yet, while this is a command, and it could come across as very demanding and and induce a sense of guilt in us, Jesus goes on to demonstrate how amazingly patient he is and how and how he sees us as weak and feeble and and takes us where we're at. In verse two, and I won't I won't read all this, in verse two he starts to go on and say, Okay, I want you to look past the cross and I'm gonna give you hope. And he says, Hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm leaving you. I'm going to prepare a place for you that's beautiful and wonderful, and we would call that heaven. And he then it's then he says, Not only am I going to prepare it for you, but he says, I and the Father are one. And he starts talking to that about his disciples. And, and basically what he's saying is, I'm giving you this promise that I'm going to prepare a place for you, that I'm going to do blessing in your life. And I and God are one. So I'm not like any other human around you who you can't trust if they're going to be able to follow through. I'm telling you, I have the authority as the creator. If you will trust me, regardless of what it looks like, to follow through on my promises and bring you through it to the end. And then he goes on even further. And he says, not, not only is this a heaven issue, but this is a life and a reward issue in this life. You can trust me in this life. In John 14, 12 and 13, he says it this way. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing, and he will do even greater things than these because I go, I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I'll do it. Now, 
If you've been around church for a while, you were probably taught, okay, so that means when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. So then we always end our prayers by saying, in Jesus' name, amen, right? And we do that. And, and I pray that way most of the time, and that's a, that's a good thing to do, but, but that misses the greater context of, of the culture of the day, of the Roman culture, of the Jewish culture. If they were to designate something, somebody to do something in their name, it was because that person was a faithful servant who trusted them implicitly, and they knew they could trust, and so they were willing to give them, by direction, their full authority to act for them. And so in many respects, Jesus is saying, tying us back to this whole thing again of saying, if you learn to trust me fully, then I'll reveal myself to you and I'll give you authority to do things on my behalf. It's not that we ask what we want and we tack on this magical Jesus name thing and religion becomes what we want it to because that's the way we often approach religion. We want to know the box. We want to know the right things to see, the right rules. And we want to, we want to be able to have this magical formula that we sacrifice to the gods and our crops are good that year. And Jesus is saying, I want more than that. I want, I want trust. I want you to know me and I want you to do things under my authority because we have this trust and you've heard from me and I've directed you and, and you've gotten that. But then that, that starts to beg the question that how do we know how to follow you? Because Jesus actually in this context tells him, I'm going away. You, you'll know where to follow. You'll, you'll know where to come. And, and in that context, he actually says, okay, not only am I and the Father one, but I'm also going to send my spirit to be upon you, to live in you. So not only is saying, not only do I have the authority to follow through on my promises, but I'm going to send my very presence to live with you to ensure that you get, that your trust is rewarded in the right way. But, but the disciples are kind of going, man, you're going away and we know how to follow you because we see you and we walk around with you and you say go from Jerusalem to, to Galilee and we go with you and we understand that. You say to go pray for people. We've watched you do it and we go do that then. But, what, but when you're gone, how do we know? How can we have this kind of trust? How do we know your presence? How can we, how can we know we're acting in your name so that we can actually do the things that you say you want us to do? These things that are greater than what you even do. And I think those are the same questions we even ask today. How do we know your presence? How do we know your voice? How do we know what you're asking us to do? And Jesus answers this in, in John 14, 20, 21. And it's, it's kind of an interesting answer. And he says, on that day, and meaning on that day is referring to back when the Spirit of God comes upon you. He says, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. In other words, how will you know my presence? How will you know who I really am? And how will you know what I'm saying to you and what to do? How will you know how to follow me? And Jesus simply says this. He says, I will prove myself to you. I will prove myself to you and you will know. I am the God of the universe and I can make myself known to you and you will know my presence. It's not about religion where you come And you hear me and you get the box and you go do it. God wants to prove himself to you and you and every single one of you in here. And he says, I will be faithful to let you know my presence. But then he goes on and he he extends the answer a little bit further. In verse 21, he says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love him 
and show, or another translation says disclose or reveal. I will show or disclose or reveal myself to him. Basically, he's saying, you know, you, you want all this, you want all this clarity in what God wants you to do in life, right? You, you want to know what to do next. And basically, he's saying that if you'll trust me and you will do what I ask you to do, I'll show you more. A lot of times we want all this clarity. We want to know what it's going to be like five years down the line. And he's saying, well, you know, sometimes I'll tell you what's going to be down five years down. But sometimes I'm not going to tell you what's coming in 30 seconds. Will you trust me and do what I ask you to do next? And when we do that, he reveals more of himself. If we don't do that, we end up being blind to people wondering why our God is. Because that's his economy of revealing himself to us. We want to know the Holy Spirit better. Do what we know. It doesn't always feel good. Sometimes it's like Kim going, all I've got is an ounce today. All I can do is get up and and go to the next appointment today. But if we don't obey and trust, we don't find more of God. And if we don't continue walking forward in trust, we become more blind. And Jesus reemphasizes this in John 14, 23 to 24. He says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. And Jesus ties together in this whole passage. I want you to trust my love. And I want you to love in a way that's not word and deed only but in action. John Cavanaugh, Catholic priest who teaches ethics at St. Louis University and is widely respected in his field, a number of years ago went to work at the House of the Dying with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. He was seeking a clear answer to how best he should live the rest of his life. He was seeking the answer to the question we've raised. What do you want me to do, God? What's next? And, how do, and he wanted clarity in that. And on the first morning when he was there, he he met Mother Teresa and and she asked him, what can I do for you? And he said, would you please pray for me? And she said, "How how can I pray for you? What do you want me to pray for? And he voiced the request that he had borne thousands of miles from the United States all the way to Calcutta. And he says, pray that I have clarity. And her answer was, no, I won't do that. I won't pray for clarity for you. And when he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you're clinging to. You must let go of it. If we demand clarity, carrying our cross, taking it up daily, trusting God implicitly, doesn't always include clarity. When Kavanaugh commented to her that she always seemed to have clarity, the clarity that he longed for, she just laughed. And this is what she said. She said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. That God is good. And that God will come through. And that God will lead me. Following Christ leads to him disclosing more of himself to us. Yet living the life of the cross, the life of utter trust seeding all perception of self-control that we think we have, even though the reality of self-control and self-determination is really just a mist. Because when it comes down to it, we really don't have self-control. 
We don't have control over anything in our life. Ceding all of that control to God means trading our need for clarity for something greater, something richer. Trusting that God is love, regardless of what the circumstances look like. Brennan Manning has this beautiful quote in his book, Ruthless Trust, that says, The splendor of a human heart, which trusts that it is loved, gives God more pleasure than Westminster Cathedral, Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Van Gogh's Sunflowers, the sight of 10,000 butterflies or a million orchids. And here's something that he says that I just think is really profound. He said, Trust is our gift back to God. And he finds it so enchanting that he died for the love of it. And that's really what this season is about. Craving clarity. When we crave clarity, we attempt to eliminate the risk of trusting him. Fear of the unknown path stretching out in front of us destroys childlike trust in the Father's active goodness and his unrestricted love for us. And when we often presume that trust will dispel the confusion and illuminate the darkness and and take away all the uncertainty and redeem everything, but but the reality is the crowd of witnesses that we see even in Hebrews 11 where where he talks about the heroes of the faith, the lesson is very clear that, that trust does not necessarily make everything clear but it does make everything good. It doesn't necessarily dull the chaos and the pain of the world that we live in, which is a fallen, sinful world with with painful things in it. And when all else is unclear, the heart of trust simply says what Jesus said on the cross. It says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands, Father, who loves me so much, whose love I can trust in an unending fashion, I commit my spirit, my way, everything. If we could just free ourselves from the temptation to make faith this mindless, dusty pawn shop of of beliefs that we have to believe in, this box of beliefs that we have to understand in order to have clarity, to understand exactly how to live life in in a way that, that meets all the requirements and makes us pleasing and makes us good. If we can just give that up and instead learn this lesson that Jesus is asking us today, that biblical faith lies in simply trusting His love and Him revealing himself as we're obedient, that allows us to pray a prayer like, Father, Dad, Papa, God, I I completely trust you. I completely surrender to you and your will, your direction, your obedience to all you say regardless of the outcome because of my unending trust and confidence in your love that you are and always will be a loving Father to me. Brennan Manning goes on, if the worship team can come this time. Brennan Manning goes on to say this. He says, unwavering trust is a rare and precious thing because it often demands a degree of courage that borders on heroic. Because when the shadows of life and sin and the cross and, and difficulty fall on us, when betrayal or unemployment or rejection or failure or depression or loss of a loved one fall on us and, and all we can hear is the shriek of pain in the world around us, it's so easy to just simply ask the question, God, how could a loving God permit this? 
And at such moments, the seeds of distrust are sown. And it really requires heroic courage to trust the love of God no matter what happens. This premeditated, dogged, determined trust in the love of God that that says, Father, I trust you, that says when we're ready to be thrown in the furnace, whether you save me or my God is able to save me, but whether he does or doesn't, I still trust him. That's the same as Jesus in Gethsemane when he says, Father, if, if you would take this cup, take it, but if not, your will be done, not mine. Or Paul unjustly imprisoned and imprisoned in Second Timothy says, I know who it is that I put my trust in, even in the moments when he thinks his life is coming to an end. Or John, later in years, reflecting in his journey in a, in a letter he wrote later outside of his Gospels, and he says, and so we know and rely on the love of God. Or we ourselves have known and put our trust in God's love toward us. He's known God's love, the faithfulness of trust at each step and God revealing more of himself. And he's come to the place where he trusts God's love so implicitly that there is no greater thing in his life. You know, the following statement, I think, is true of the majority of us today. We don't need more insights into our faith. We've got enough to last us a couple hundred years. What we need is the ability to trust moment by moment that God really does love us, that he really does have a good plan for us, and everything else will take care of itself. I want to invite you as a response to, to re-sing part of the chorus we sang earlier because it's a way of verbalizing through music in our own way collectively. God, we trust you. We're going to live life trusting your love. Would you join me? Will you make that your prayer this week? Here in the love of Christ I stand. Lord, I just pray for those here who have never made that statement before. I pray that you would, as they take a step of of faith and trust to you, disclose yourself. And Lord, I pray that confidently because you've said you would do that. So I trust you to make yourself known to us. Lord, we love you. We trust you. May your kingdom come. And may not only heaven be great, but may this life see miracles in our lives and in the life of this community. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here and would like prayer, we'd love to pray for you. There'll be some people around front. Have a great week. God bless.